Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. One of the most famous musicals ever made is based on a story written by Victor Hugo, set in the 1800s, the early 1800s. Um, some of you already know what it is, it's Les Miserables, or the Australian version, Les Miserables, um, Les Mis for short. Uh, so it's set early 19th century France, the, they've just had the French Revolution in France, and Napoleon's done his thing, uh, they've killed the monarchy, he's come, he's gone. And, and France is in absolute turmoil. And there's this fellow by the name of Jean Valjean. He's the, the main character of the story. Jean Valjean is uh, a man who was very poor and was caught stealing a loaf of bread for his sister's child who was dying of hunger. And as a result of being captured uh, and convicted, he was sent to the work gangs, to the chain gang, where he stayed for 19 years in this story um, for various reasons, but it was a harsh, harsh world that he lived in and not so far from the truth at the time. Anyway, Jean Valjean uh, is finally released after 19 years and tries to enter society again. The problem being, as a former criminal and someone who really has nothing to his name, there's no way he can make it again in society, so he returns to petty crime. He ends up finding his way to... Um, a monastery where a bishop looks after him and gives him a place to stay. All this while he's being um, held to account by uh, a, an inspector, Javert, because he's still on parole, he still has to report back regularly. And Javert is on his case, uh, knowing full well that he's going to return to his life of crime. Anyway, Jean Valjean, the main character, is in this monastery uh, and decides uh, he needs some money. So he steals some silverware from the priest, uh, and off he goes on his way. And lo and behold, he's caught by Inspector Javert. And Inspector Javert says, stop, I'm taking you back to jail. But around the corner comes this priest, this bishop, actually. And the bishop says, no, 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 no wait, wait, wait. I actually gave him those candlesticks. So, and he takes Jean Valjean back to his home. Um, he's not arrested that day. Uh, and he actually gives him the most expensive candlesticks, silver candlesticks that he owns. Jean Valjean uh, has a revolution to his life. Uh, this experience of grace changes his life dramatically. He no longer lives a life of crime. He, he actually rips up his parole papers and runs away and creates a whole new person of himself. Uh, where he is, his life is marked by kindness to people in his employ. He becomes a mayor of a town. Uh, and when this whole thing is going down with the bishop, this is what he says. He said, My life was a, a war that could never be won. Yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me his brother. My life, he claims, for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? 
what spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall, and the night is closing in, and I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. That last line, another story must begin, beautifully encapsulates the heart of our message today. Today we are returning to our study through the book of Acts. And we get to consider this stunningly beautiful topic of new life. And so I've entitled today's sermon, Getting New Life. Getting in the sense of receiving it, but getting in the sense of understanding it as well. Because just like Jean Valjean, new life is something that is given to each of us as we come into relationship with God. So my thesis today is all about new life, but it's in four related parts. Number one that when someone comes to hear of Jesus, they bring with them certain assumptions and certain understandings that prevent their full experience of what God has to offer. Number two, that the life that is on offer is something called new life. Number three, that this new life is empowered by the Holy Spirit and it's marked by obedience, by power and by faithfulness. And number four, that that the expression, that the living out of this new life has an impact on the world around us to bring more new life. In other words, new life, how we got it, number one. Sorry, how we miss it, number one. How we get it, number two. What it looks like, number three. And what it achieves, number four. And I think as we come out of our summer holiday season and enter this new year, returning to our routines, perhaps even thinking about how this year is going to be different from the last year. What is it we want to do that's new this year? What is, it, what is it that we want to hold on to? What is it that we want to give up? What is it that we want to do the same but different? Thinking about new life is an appropriate thing to be doing. It's become, new life has become the basis of countless works of art, whether that's songs, books, movies, fine art, New life has become a theme that pervades the artistic world. Why? Because I think it resonates with something deep within our own spirits. It resonates with the fact that we are called to new life, whether we have it or not. And even as we ponder where God is leading us as a church this year, as we appoint a new elder, we need to be asking God, what do we keep doing exactly the same? What do we stop? But also, what new thing do you want us to do Or what thing do you want us to do in a new way? Now, if you're taking notes, here's our outline. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you as well as we work through the text today and kind of answer some of these questions. Number one, before new life, we were wrong about Jesus. That's how we miss it. Hopefully you can see it. It's a little bit light. Number two, new life requires belief in Jesus, how we get it. Number three, new life involves receiving the Spirit. That's verses six to seven, what it looks like. And number four, New life multiplies new life, verses 8 to 10, what it achieves. So, straight into point one, before new life, we were wrong about Jesus or how we missed it. Let's dive straight into this text. Open up with me, if you're not already there, Acts chapter 19, it's much, much better if you can follow along in your Bible, check what I'm saying, make sure I'm not lying to you, um, and, and let's read it together. So, Acts 19, 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, or the high country, that word is in the Greek, and he came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. We need to stop already to provide a bit of context for where we find ourselves today. Now, prior to our summer holiday jaunt into the book of Psalms, we'd been working through this book of Acts for quite a few months. 
So very briefly, uh, because it's the start of the new year, Acts is the story of the early church. Okay, it's written by a doctor by the name of Luke. And it's, it's part two of Luke's record, part one being the gospel of Luke, part two is Acts. And there's this division, Acts takes over as Jesus ascends into heaven. Acts takes over the story from there. And it shows the movement of the good news, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ from a Jewish-only audience in Jerusalem. And it shows the movement of that good news all the way to the other side of the known world, all across the known world, to not only Jews but to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And in keeping with this change of audience, Acts also has a change of character. So initially we have the apostles, uh, the Jesus apostles, the 11 that were left and the extra one, and kind of, they form the, the, the bulk of the story of the early Acts, um, and, and particularly Peter. But then as the story progresses, Paul takes over as the chief character of the book of Acts. As he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, he takes the, the gospel to all of the known world. And the book will end, actually, with Paul imprisoned in Rome as he takes the gospel all the way to his intended target at Rome as well. Now, by by chapter 19, where we find ourselves today, this mission of taking the good news to Jesus is well underway. He's made some very good progress. So let's look at the map. All right, this is our map here. Uh, You can see the bottom right, we've got Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that's where it starts. Um, And then they develop a home church in this place called Antioch, right at the, the... the right side of the upper part of the Mediterranean Sea there. So that's Antioch, and that becomes the home base for all of the missionary journeys. And so at this stage, Paul's already done two missionary journeys, okay? He's done one just through Cyprus, that little island, in, and he's done this kind of, this top right corner of the Mediterranean, this, all this land adjoining. So that's kind of middle of modern-day Turkey, basically, um, and then southern Turkey. Turkey, at the moment, kind of slips down to include where Antioch is there. So all that kind of little, little portion, that was the first missionary journey. The second missionary journey, he does all of that except Cyprus, Barnabas does Cyprus, uh, and he does all that, but he goes all the way over to Greece. So that's that, that one in the, that chunky bit in the middle, there's Achaia and Corinth and Macedonia. What we call Greece today, they called Macedonia and Achaia, and they use the word Greece as well, that usually meant Macedonia. So he does that, and on his way back, he decides he's going to finish his second missionary journey, he's going to go back to Antioch, and on his way back, he drops into this place called Ephesus. Right? And, he, and he says, I'm going to come back to you if, if, if I can. Okay? And then he finishes, uh, in Acts 18, he finishes his second missionary journey. And we saw the beginning of the third missionary journey in Acts 18, verse 23. And so, here we are, coming back into Ephesus. Now, if you'll remember there was this other person, it just mentions it, um, called Apollos. And Apollos was this guy who uh, basically hadn't, ha- was faithful to the Old Testament Scriptures, had heard some of the story about Jesus, he'd heard about John the Baptist, he'd heard of John the Baptist's baptism, he knew bits and pieces, but there's a whole bunch he didn't know. And so it was an incomplete picture. And, uh, and luckily Apollos uh, meets Aquila and Priscilla, this faithful couple, um, who kind of fill him in on the details, and he's, he's super humble. He's humble, and he hears it, and he's corrected, and then they commend him, and he goes off to Corinth. So Corinth is over there, so Ephesus is over here, that, the very western part of modern Turkey, and Corinth is over here. So Apollos has just left to go to Corinth, and, and then Paul arrives. And it says, you know, Paul, he found some disciples in the end of verse 1 there. And in verse 2 it says, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Sounds familiar. So these guys are in the same boat as Apollos, right, before he had been corrected. And it's quite possible that these disciples actually heard what they knew from 
Apollos um, before Apollos got corrected. But how does Paul manage to pick out this group? They seem to be missing something, obviously. We're not sure exactly what they said or what they did. He goes, oh, something's not quite right there. But he picks it up and he susses it out and basically they're in this situation where they've heard part of the story about Jesus. Part of the story. Now, they're described as being disciples, right? And there's a lot of debate uh, in the literature uh, among the academics, uh, of which I am not, that they, whether these guys were actually saved Christians or whether they weren't. Um, but disciple just really means student, right? Disciple means student. So they're students of someone. And the implication here is that they're students of John the Baptist. Um, whether that means they're saved or not, it's, it's probably a little academic, to be honest. Um, but at the very least, these disciples have heard about Jesus to a degree. Okay? And what they've heard, they believe, and they're faithful in what they have heard. Um, but they're stuck in this moment in history when John the Baptist was making his own disciples and telling them about Jesus, and, and they've probably heard some updates as travellers come bringing news, but they certainly don't have a complete picture just yet. Right? So what about this message of John the Baptist? What was it? Remember, he was, he was Jesus' basically bug-eating, quirky cousin who dressed in camel hair, lived in the desert, and really annoyed the religious people of the day. That was John the Baptist. But when we were last in Acts, Dave Dean looked at John and his baptism really from the point of view of a prophet, uh, preparing the way for Jesus, someone who was making way for Jesus to arrive. Which admittedly, when we look at the Gospels, is John the Baptist's main thing. He is a prophet of God. He's the final Old Testament prophet, even though he's talked about in our New Testament. He's, he's of the Old Testament age, he's the final prophet. But today we're taking a different approach. And we're seeing John the Baptist and his disciples as representative of this group of people who are open to Jesus, but they simply don't have the full picture of Jesus just yet. And it's possible, I think, that we might even see ourselves in this group to some extent. Or at the very least, we can recognize times, or a time at least, when it has been the case that we haven't had the full picture of Jesus. So at the very least, Paul figures that these guys don't know about the Holy Spirit, Pick that up, and we'll talk about this some. And the, and the only baptism they know is the baptism of John. So what's wrong with the baptism of John? Well, the, the brief answer is there's nothing wrong with the baptism of John. In fact, it's good. It even includes repentance, and it even includes forgiveness of sins. Um, there's nothing wrong with it, but it is woefully inadequate as far as the full picture of Jesus goes. And so Paul goes on to explain, if you look at your text, verse 4 in chapter 19 of Acts, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. See, Paul makes the case that John's ministry was never about John. It was always about Jesus. Always about Jesus. Now, repentance is good, Okay, the Greek word metanoia, it just means a change of mind. Um, and it's always used in the New Testament, always used to describe this process of rejecting uh, a past way of living and turning towards a new way of living, recognizing a life of error and turning towards another way of doing things. And John's baptism involved, as we said, the forgiveness of sins. So in this context, it's repenting from old sinful lifestyle that rejected God's rule over our lives. That's what repentance is. And that's still important for us today. It's still a part of the picture for us today. But the problem is the message of Jesus is not complete with repentance, as we've said. Repentance is important, yes. 
But it's only one part of the picture, as we'll see, because the Christian life goes so much further than repentance alone. See, at the very least, we're going to see that it includes the fact that Jesus calls us to be baptized in His name, at the very least, and that God gives us the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty big change. See, the complete picture of baptism for the believer is not something we're going to be aiming to cover today. I can't do that. We don't have the time for it. You don't want to sit here and listen to it on a 38-degree day. Not going to happen. But we do need to say at least something about it to understand what's going on here. See, in the simplest of terms, baptism is a symbol of the death and burial of Jesus as we go down into the water. And it's a symbol of new life as we come up out of the water. That's what baptism symbolizes. But see, baptism doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. It's an outward symbol of the inner reality that, we, that what Jesus comes and does in us. But the way the New Testament talks about baptism can be a little bit confusing, okay? Because sometimes when someone says, what must I do to be saved? What's the answer? Repent and be baptized, Repent and be baptized. So what's going on there? See, a useful analogy is that of the wedding ring. We were um, fortunate enough to be at Tom and George's wedding on Friday. A beautiful day, um, absolutely amazing. They looked stunning. Um, just, a, just lovely words all around. Um, it was at the, the Christchurch Cathedral, so it's very impressive. Um, but at one stage, Tom and Georgia came and faced each other and they got their ring and they said, with this ring, I thee wed. With this ring, I thee wed. Now, my question is, does the, does the ring do the wedding? Does the ring do the marriage? Is the ring even required for marriage? It's not. It's not. See, the ring is an outward sign of an inner reality. Just like baptism is an outer sign of an inner reality. Now, most people in our culture wear a wedding ring when they get married. And, and the command for us as believers is once we're saved to get baptized. That's a command. Um, but there are things that get in the way of that, and that's okay. But baptism is the normal way of having an outward sign of an inner reality that you have a new life in Jesus. Okay. Sideline finished. Let's get back to the disciples. So as we see, they were wrong about Jesus, right? At least they didn't have all the information. They lacked an accurate picture of who Jesus was and this is true for every one of us at some stage prior to coming to faith in Jesus. See we all at some point had been looking at Jesus through the foggy windscreen of our lives and that failure to comprehend causes us to miss what is on offer for us as we fully comprehend who Jesus is. Not only is it true before we come to know Jesus but I'd also suggest personally that it can continue to be a reality in my own life that I don't always fully comprehend exactly who Jesus is and that as a result of that I can miss out on exactly what Jesus has for me. For example, let's say you're chatting to a friend because this happens I think not just, um, in, not just for us. This happens in, in culture at large. People don't know much about Jesus. They don't know much about following Jesus, right? Um, one of the, the great misconceptions, I think, about Jesus, let's say you're talking to a friend uh, and they say something that I hear all the time. They say, you know what, being a Christian sounds like it's just a bunch of following rules. 
Um, and I don't really want to be trapped. It sounds like less freedom to me. How do you respond to that? See, this misconception is so common in our culture that I think it's worthwhile addressing it even now. Let me give you an analogy. This is my tractor. We're going to put the tractor up. This is my tractor. I took that photo this morning. Um, that's my slasher at the back there. You can see it's been painted where it's been re-welded um, multiple times because I do have a habit of hitting tree stumps. Uh, not only in my car, but in my tractor as well. This is my tractor. And that slasher there does an excellent job when it's plugged into the tractor. It, 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 it gets through sticks this big and it just it mulches everything. Um, it's excellent. But imagine if the slasher were to say to the tractor, you know what, I feel kind of trapped by you. I've got to follow you around everywhere you go. I don't want to follow you anymore. I want to do my own thing. Okay, so the, the slasher could very, could, could sit in that shed and really be completely free of the tractor. The slasher could do that. It could be completely disconnected from what gives it animation, from what gives it ability to move and, and do its job. It could be there and it would, in some sense, be exercising its freedom to do that. But see, if we're the slasher and the tractor is God, you've obviously seen where this is going. I mean, I think I'd rather be the slasher that was connected to the tractor. Right? What kind of slasher wants to sit in a shed getting rusty? Wouldn't you rather be out there cutting the grass, doing what you were designed to do? And who's really more free? The tractor in the shed or the tractor connected to the tractor? The tractor connected to the, fresh, to, to the tractor, the slasher connected to the tractor. <laughs> so that ten times fast. Is more free to do what it was designed to do. Let's take another example. I work as a GP. It's my, it's my Monday to Thursday job. Friday's farm day. And, um, and let's say I get a patient and I've diagnosed them with diabetes. Okay? And I say, you know, Bob, you've got diabetes. It's, um, it's, it's pretty advanced. You know, HbO1c is 10%, normal's under 7. You know, you really need to get on top of this with some medication. So I'm going to give you some metformin. Uh, I'm going to give you some dapagliflozin. I'm going to give you some, maybe some insulin if it gets really bad. And Bob goes, no, nah, don't want it. Not interested. I don't want your medicine. I do not want to be tied to these medications. Okay? I, I like to be free. I like to be free from, um, from doctors. I like to be free from, from chemists. I like to be free from big pharma and medications. I'm not doing it. I go, oh, it's your choice. Um, no worries. But see, what's going to happen to Bob? Bob is going to get blind. He's probably going to lose some limbs. His kidneys are going to fail. He's going to have a heart attack or a stroke, all because he chose to exercise his freedom not to take medication. That's the kind of freedom God gives us, the freedom to reject Him if we want. But are we really free when we reject life-giving solutions? I would argue that we're not. Anyway, that concludes our first point. So often we come to God, um, people in community come to God with, with misunderstandings of who God is, who Jesus really is. But now, let's follow the story. How do these disciples respond when Paul talks to them and, and tells them what the real deal is? Verse 5, on hearing this, these disciples, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this brings us to the second point in our outline. 
New life requires belief in Jesus. How do they respond? Decisively. And the response is both positive and immediate, isn't it? But possibly more important than that, it's a humble response. There's no pride involved, no argument, no, well, you know, we got taught this, can you prove that what you're saying is true? None of that. It's, it's pure humility. It's surprising that, that deep humility, deep lowness of self-opinion is what leads to the most grand gift we could possibly imagine. That having such a low view of our own capacity for knowledge is what allows us to possess the most intimate knowledge of the creator of the universe. That having such a, a low view allows us to be in communion with God who made the world and made us and knows us perfectly. See, it's only by kneeling down in the mud of our own pride that we're able to find underneath the mud that gemstone that's always been there. That is God talking to us and calling us into his family. So what's required to move from having a wrong view of Jesus to being in relationship with Jesus? It's humility and belief and faith. See, faith and belief, or they kind of have similar meanings. It's a long story. Talk to me about it afterwards. But belief... Um, Let's call them the same thing for now. It's, it's the necessary condition for being received into God's family, belief or faith. And, this, and, and to get this, this, this new life in us. It's a necessary condition. And what is the result of that obedience that these guys show, of, of showing their faith, of being baptised? Well, this is where we get to our third point on the outline. And we're moving through this. Verses 6 to 7 um, up there. New life involves receiving the Spirit, what it looks like, what new life looks like. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, it says, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There are about 12 men in all. So there's 12 of these guys, and, and, they, and as they hear this complete message, they get immediately baptized, and now Paul is laying hands on them. And what happens next? Well, the text says they receive the Holy Spirit. And we see here another instance of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit right at the beginning of these disciples' walk with Jesus. This is actually the fourth time that we've seen this kind of event happen in the book of Acts. And I've got them up there for you. Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, Acts 8, uh, when the Samaritans were with Peter and John. Acts 10 with Cornelius and Peter in Joppa. Uh, and then here, Paul with these 12 from Ephesus. Four times. Each episode, though, is slightly different. Sometimes there's a laying on of the hands here. Sometimes there's a laying on of the hands there. Sometimes there's not a laying on of the hands. Sometimes they get baptized first. Sometimes they get baptized afterwards. There's no really rhyme and reason other than that it all kind of tends to happen in the end. And I think that's deliberate. See, I think what God is saying is you can't put the Holy Spirit in a box. You can't make a formula and add this and add this and get the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit is a person. And, uh, you know, I think that is useful for us to realize. There are some things, though, to think about as we see the Holy Spirit working in this way. Some, some ways that the Holy Spirit does tend to operate that is somewhat predictable. Uh, have a look at Romans 8, 9. It's on there. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. What does that mean? Well, it means that every single believer has the Spirit of Christ. 
Every single believer. As soon as you are saved, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. It is not something you go and get at a later date. You don't become a believer, not have the Spirit, and then go and get the Spirit. When you become a believer, you have the Spirit. You can't separate the two. See, all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Romans was written by Paul not too long after these events that we're listening to right now. See, these are written in Ephesus, he stays there for two years, and then he goes to Corinth, and it's in Corinth where he writes a letter to Romans. So he's reflecting on these experiences when he's writing the book of Romans, when he's writing this verse right here. So all Christians have the Spirit. But this leads us to our second point. Again, one we've made before, but it's worth repeating that, that there's a second way that the Spirit works. See, there's a distinction between the Holy Spirit being in you and the Holy Spirit being upon you. So if every believer has the Spirit in them, then the Spirit coming upon people at certain times for certain purposes is entirely God's prerogative. We don't choose when that happens. But it is something we can be seeking. It is something we can be seeking. It's not something that we contrive. It's not something that we say, if I do this, God's going to pour out His Spirit on me. It's not, it doesn't work like that. And it's not a once and done thing either. You don't have the Holy Spirit poured out on you once. Uh, you can go through your entire life as a believer without ever having the Holy Spirit poured out on you. Or you could go through life and have the Holy Spirit poured out on you many, many times. It's God's prerogative. See, there are different degrees to which this kind of second type of experience is happening. See, from the Spirit coming upon people at a particular time, just to have the right words in a conversation. That's a Spirit moving upon you. Um, or this more public, obvious expression that we're seeing here, described as a filling, it's described as a baptism in the book of Acts. Or a pouring out, it's described as kind of this, this bigger um, version of it. And it's often accompanied with the obviously miraculous. And see, there's a pattern that we see in Acts, that when a new group receives the gospel for the first time, that the Holy Spirit comes upon people in this very public and unmistakable way. And we don't contrive these movements. We don't, we don't resist them, though, either. If you want to see the Holy Spirit working in a powerful way in this church, Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, if you want to see the Holy Spirit working powerfully in your life, then I suggest you put yourself in a situation where people are becoming believers. It's as simple as that. How are we doing at that? I know for me, um, when I'm talking to people about Jesus who don't yet know Him, there's definitely a sense that God is doing something, that God is shaping my words, that God give me, gives me the right words to say at the right time. What I'm going to suggest is the Holy Spirit does at these pouring out times, He does something very rapidly and very obvious that really is um, a demonstration in, in, a, in a fast way of what happens over a long period of time as a slow burn of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Right? So you see the Holy Spirit gives people wisdom, the Holy Spirit gives people joy. The Holy Spirit gives people um, power. And all of these things we, we receive from the indwelling Holy Spirit um, in, a, in a slow process, in a, a process of growth. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Um, but this public coming upon is, is used repeatedly as an outward sign, again, of an inner reality. That all believers have, in fact, the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And this is kind of the proof of that. But I think we can kind of miss the point by talking about these outward miraculous events. Um, see, this everyday miracle, this indwelling spirit for believers doesn't just result in new life, going back to our topic. 
the, the, I'll say that again. The indwelling Spirit doesn't result in new life, just. It actually is the new life. It is the new life. The life of Christ in you is the Holy Spirit. It's what we talk about with baptism. It is the life of Christ. The dead, buried, resurrected, seated at the right hand Father, life of Jesus, living in us by the Holy Spirit, is the new life that we possess as Christians. Now, this has vast implications for our present, vast implications for our near future, vast implications for eternity, I'm going to suggest. The Holy Spirit living in us now is the new life that we possess. But let's go back to our outline for point, um, for point three. We see that this new life involves receiving the Spirit. But the second half is its certain characteristics. What are they? What does it look like? All right? So broadly, it looks like the indwelling Spirit of God. We know that. Um, but today's text just gives us a picture, I think, of just a few of the characteristics that we can expect to see when we have the indwelling Spirit. There's humility. We've already looked at that. There's obedience. Verse 5, they were baptized. So the Holy Spirit indwelling you gives you humility. The Holy Spirit indwelling you gives you obedience. There's power or ability. Verse 6, they were speaking in other languages. They had never learned these languages. And they're prophesying. They're saying things that they had no right to know. There's power from the Holy Spirit. And then there's fruitfulness, which we're going to look at in a second. Fruitfulness, begetting more new life from new life. So the life begins with humility. It's one of obedience to God. It involves power given by God for God's purposes and fruitfulness, again, for God's purposes. Let's look at that last characteristic because it really forms its own point, that final point, point four, new life multiplies new life. Verses 8 to 10, what it achieves. Verse 8 and onwards, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. See, these 12 men were a special, a special situation that Paul was met with on his return to Ephesus, but now Paul reverts to his modus operandi, his normal way of operating. Repeatedly we see Paul, when he comes to a new place, go first to his own people, to the synagogue, to the Jews. Paul is a Jew first and he has a heart for his own people. He wants to see his own people saved. He is so desperate to see his people come back into relationship with God. But then, inevitably, he gets kicked out and then he spreads his message to the whole of the city and this is exactly what happens here. See, Paul spends time boldly proclaiming the word of God. Then he goes to the hall, the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was, we don't really know, he was, he was a guy who owned a hall, basically. He was actually a dude, it wasn't like some god. A dude who owned a hall and he let people talk in his hall. It was like a, a school hall or a, um, a, a university lecture hall. I think if you're going to picture the hall of Tyrannus today, it'd be some sort, some sort of like weird love child between YouTube and a university campus, okay? And they had this love child, it's the hall of Tyrannus. It's where everybody goes to talk about ideas and it's okay to talk about it, dear. So that's where Paul goes. And what does it say? He's there every day. Exactly. He's there every day for two years. He's there. And notice one thing, though. He, who does he take with him? It says he takes these disciples with him. Takes these disciples. 
See, this is where we see them live out their new life because I can guarantee you it's not just Paul who's talking. It's not just Paul having a quiet conversation with this guy in the corner who's lost his wife, wondering what the purpose of life is and wants to know what to do next. It's these 12. They're living out the new life that they've been given. I want to draw out two points here in the text which aren't directly part of the main theme, but, but they are important enough to get a special mention. And they are both relevant to this idea of new life being fruitful. First is this mention of the kingdom of God. When Paul is speaking to the Jews, you know, this is a major theme of Jewish thought. In fact, it's a major theme of the New Testament. It's especially a major theme of Jesus. It's one of his biggest talking points, is the kingdom of God. It's, it's, some people say the, the single most talked about point for Jesus. And so Paul is really continuing in Jesus' footsteps by, by preaching the kingdom of God. But who's he preaching the kingdom to? He was before he went to Tyrannus. He preached the kingdom of God to the Jews. So it's a very Jewish idea. Now, this doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to us, but it is very specifically Jewish. Um, now, we're, going to do, we're not going to do a deep dive on the kingdom of God. We, again, we don't have time for that. But there is one other place in Scripture where we see the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit mentioned together by Paul, and it's in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. We've got it up on the screen. This is what it says. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, the kingdom is not about the specifics, Paul is saying, of outward religious observance. That's the context. It's about righteousness. It's about peace and it's about joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's about new life. So the kingdom of God, Paul is saying, is about new life. This is the revolutionary part of the teaching of the kingdom of God that we saw from Jesus onwards, all the way through the rest of the New Testament. See, the expectation before Jesus came on board was that a Messiah would come and physically rule in Jerusalem the Jewish people with a Jewish state and they would have an impact on the world. That was the expectation of Jewish people at that time. But Jesus turns it on its head. See, because the kingdom of God is more than just a physical rule of Jesus in Jerusalem, in Israel, in the Promised Land. It includes that at some stage in the future, but it's more than that. See, because what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying here is that the kingdom of God is a present reality in the lives and hearts of those who accept Jesus as king. That's what kingdom means, where God is king. And the kingdom of God is mediated by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is already here. It's in the midst of those who love God, who choose to submit to God as their ruler, their king. So, in other words, by new life being fruitful, by having the new life and being fruitful with your new life, you're not simply converting people to Christianity. You're not getting them a better way to live or getting them to heaven. You're very literally taking part in growing the kingdom of God. It's like you're finding and dragging these dead branches and you're dragging them to this big tree and you're putting them on the tree and miraculously they get new life and they're connected to the tree. And that tree is the kingdom of God. The tree is the kingdom of God. It's our job is to drag those dead branches and to, and to give them to God and say, God, and the branch says yes and God says yes. And then there's new life. 
Now, the second point uh, to note in this section is that Paul is meeting Gentiles on their own terms. Where? In the Hall of Tyrannus. See, Paul recognises where the people of his culture went to talk about ideas. And it's that place that he devotes his energy. What is that place for us, church? Where is that place? Where and how is it acceptable to speak on the most fundamental topics of reality? I mean, there's, there's online. I mean, I want to suggest probably that one of the most obvious places is just is our friendships. Our friendships. It's still acceptable to have a deep and meaningful with a friend about these topics, if you do it right. We're at this wedding and Kendall talked to a young lady um, all night about Christian things. This girl had been to a Christian school but was not from a Christian family. Um, and it was a beautiful conversation to watch. We have opportunities to talk to people about these things, but we need to do it in a way that's respectful. That, that is understanding of the culture that we live in. It's not to say that Paul only speaks where it's appreciated. He's got too many scars for that to be the case, right? He certainly uh, cops a, a fair flogging for, for speaking out of turn. Um, so, you know, we should, we should temper this with a bit of boldness as well. It's not just waiting till the time is perfect. There's also boldness, and I think there's this beautiful connection of the two that Paul nails. But back to our main theme again. What is the result of new life living itself out? Because that's exactly what Paul is doing with these disciples. The result is that in two years, not just the city of Ephesus, but the entire region heard about the good news of Jesus. The entire region. It's a revolution. It's bigger than any military coup could have possibly achieved. And it happened because some guy shared a message and some other guys were humble enough to accept it. So let's bring it all together as you draw to a close. Number one, before new life, we were wrong about Jesus. It's easy to have misconceptions, but Jesus has made it easy for us to know him. It's called the Scriptures. That's how we know the truth about Jesus. He's given us a perfect revelation of himself so that we can know exactly who he is. Number two, new life requires belief in Jesus. As we said before, humility and belief. What I didn't say was not only is that belief is required, it is all that is required. We don't need to get right to come to God. We don't need to make ourselves morally beautiful. It would be like putting makeup on a pig to make ourselves acceptable to a perfect God in our state. That's not what we're trying to do. We're coming to God as we are. All that is required is to understand where we stand before God, to believe that Jesus is who He tells us He is, and that He's done for us what He said He's done for us. Number three, new life involves receiving the Spirit. This is possibly the most exciting reality of new life. The Spirit in us that gives us new life. And it's a Spirit that makes us obedient to God, that frees us to do His will that brings joy and peace and fruitfulness. Are you lacking boldness? Then why don't you examine your relationship with the Holy Spirit? And finally, new life multiplies new life. We get to be involved in God's plan to grow His kingdom. We are His ambassadors, His representatives. And this final picture up here is a picture of Jean Valjean. See, he was changed by his interaction with the bishop. 
And as a result of that, he changed the lives of others around him. But the thing with Jean Valjean, he continued to be chased by Inspector Javert for the rest of his days. Um, and Inspector Javert was this guy who was committed to justice at all costs. He had no, um, no uh, qualms about continuing to pursue justice, no matter what it cost the person who was pursuing it. This is what Inspector Javert says. He says, mine is the way of the Lord. He thinks he's doing the right thing. And those who follow the path of righteous, shall ha- righteous of the righteous shall have the reward. And if they fall, as Lucifer fell, the flame, the sword. And so it has been, and so it is written on the doorway to paradise that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Now the fascinating thing is that Javert is not actually wrong in one sense. There is a question of debt that needs to be answered, that needs to be paid for. But this is where grace, that free, undeserved gift, comes onto the scene. When Jean Valjean is given his new chance, and he's about to embark on his new life, the bishop says this, he says, Remember this, my brother, see in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God, but for us... Our soul has been bought, not by a bishop, but by God himself, by Jesus. Your soul has been purchased for the Father at the cost of the life of his only Son. Maybe you're yet to receive the gift. And if so, I encourage you, consider it. Maybe you have received it and you're currently living out all that God intends for you right now. And I praise God for your faithfulness and for his faithfulness. Maybe you've received the gift, but you've forgotten its value. It's easy to do. Let's remind ourselves of the gift, the gift of new life as we go into our world, as we continue to bring that new life to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for new life. Thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, who calls us to freedom, to true freedom in your family. Lord, and as we, uh, as we look at where our lives are right now, I pray that you would bring to mind um, those areas where we are lacking in our understanding of you, uh, lacking in that knowledge that brings life. And Lord, I pray that you would, um, by your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, um, that you would help us to get stuck into our word, that you would help us to understand you better every day. And Lord, that you would use us for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.